Okay, welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 131, The Scott Cast, Part 8, The Expansion of Pickland. This show is free and independent due to member support. And as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, such as extra episodes and rough transcripts. If you're interested in supporting the show and helping us out, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Clark, Andrew, and John for contributing already. So today we'll begin the account of what was going on with the Picts following the withdrawal of Rome. And we're going to start it with a rather discouraging fact. Isn't it nice when I can start an episode on an up note? So here's that fact. In the Group A version of the Pictish chronology, there are only three Pictish kings who had any of their deeds recorded before Kenneth McAlpin showed up. Just three. Everything else is pretty much just a chronology, just simple markers indicating the passage of time. So that's tough, I'll admit it. But it isn't fatal for us. There's still stuff to be gleaned there, and there's still archaeology. And we knew a lot of this was going to be mysterious when we started, right? All right, so why don't we focus this discussion on a couple of those kings? So first up, we have Drust, son of Erp, who we're told reigned for a hundred years and fought a hundred battles. And we're told that in the 19th year of his reign, St. Patrick arrived in Ireland. And you might be thinking, well, that St. Patrick thing should give us a good sense of when he reigned, right? And you would be correct, sort of. The trouble is, though, that we aren't even sure when St. Patrick lived and when he went to Ireland, but it does at least give us a rough sense of time. And so it was probably in the 5th century, if the account is correct. Though the problem is the 100 years, 100 battle things definitely reeks of legend. So how much can we trust it is subject to debate. And as you might remember from the discussion on Arthur in the members episodes, Historical sources aren't a salad bar. You can't pick some things and leave others. If you find parts that are clearly erroneous, you can't say, well, we'll ignore that part, but we'll still trust the bits that are right next to it. Errors and legends throw the entire thing into question. So right from the outset, we should look at this entry, at the very least, as highly questionable. But something that should jump out at you, regardless of whether or not the account is actually accurate, is that we're tying the chronology of Pictland to events that were occurring in Ireland. That's kind of strange, isn't it? I mean, the arrival of Patrick and subsequent widespread conversion was certainly a big deal for the Irish, but you wouldn't think that the Picts would care all that much. However, don't forget that Christianity flowed from the Welsh-British territories into Ireland and then was later introduced into the Scottish tribes by Irish missionaries. So even though Pictland wasn't involved, you could see that it would become an important moment for the chroniclers following the introduction of Christianity into Pictland. And also, the missionaries were probably well aware of the date of Patrick's arrival and might have used that date to try and backdate the events that were transpiring in the Pictish Chronicle and provide some sort of fixed date to link everything to. And because of that, it's reasonable to hazard the guess that if King Drust did exist, he probably ruled in the middle 5th century. Naturally, it's unlikely that he ruled for 100 years. I mean, not even Victoria pulled that off. 
But that very well might have been just a literary flourish to say he ruled for a long time and fought a ton of battles. And actually, Drus did live in an era where he easily could have fought a hundred battles. I mean, this was an era that was ripe for conflict. Now, the kings that preceded Drust very well could have had a difficult time fighting and surviving that many battles. After all, theirs was a world where at least a portion of the battles they fought were against the Romans, and the stakes for those fights were literally the survival of their entire civilization. So they're not going to want to get into a hundred battles against the Romans. Sooner or later, luck won't turn their way, and then they're just wiped out. But things had changed, and now... Rather than trying to survive, the Picts were in a position to expand their wealth and holdings. The early Pictish raids during the Roman period, which were very likely targeted strikes on enemy territory, appear to have changed over time. And by the end of the Roman era, the Picts appear to have been raiding for plunder rather than just survival. Almost like a 5th century form of going a Viking. And now with Drust, they were well into that period. So yeah, there were plenty of opportunities for battle during this era. The Roman Empire was pulling out of Britannia, Ireland was still rowdy, at least in the early part of his reign, and this was the time of Vortigern and Hengist and Horsa and all manner of chaos. The region was ripe with conflict. And based upon what we've heard about the life of St. Germanus and others, the Picts would have been right in the mix with some of those fights sometimes fighting alongside the Saxons, and presumably, other times, fighting against them. So while I'm skeptical about the hundred-year rule, the hundred battles doesn't sound out of the question. In fact, we're told by Gildas that the Picts, quote, seized the whole of the extreme north of the island from its inhabitants, right up to the wall, end quote. And this does seem in line with some of what we've seen in archaeology. For example, the Pictish hordes of silver found at Nori's Law in Fife and White Clue both contain artifacts that have a double disc with a Z-rod. Basically, imagine two ornate circles with this kind of lightning bolt in between it. That's the best I can describe it. And this symbol has also been found in Falkland in Fife. Further, the same symbol has been found on objects in Galloway. In fact, there's a stone in Galloway that has a symbol carved onto it. So that symbol shows up with curious regularity, and it might make you wonder what it means. Well, some argue that the Drosten stone offers an answer to that question. Inscribed upon that stone is the name Drosten, and the top symbol carved into the stone is the double disc and the Z-rod. Now, Drosten is a form of Drust, so the question is raised, could these symbols be essentially the heraldry for King Drust? I mean, we're told that he fought a tremendous amount of battles during this period of time, and we're seeing what looks like evidence of a Pictish advance, and Gildas speaks about how they advanced all the way to the wall. So is this Drust's work? It could certainly explain why he fought so much. So despite our limited resources, we're starting to get a clearer picture. And actually, speaking of those battles, one of them might have been against another known individual from Pictish history, Necton, also known as Necton the Great. Now, Necton was King Drust's brother, and we're told that at some point early in his life, he was banished by his brother to Ireland, which is a bit cheeky. And you might be wondering why he would do that. 
And those of you who were really paying attention might also be wondering why I suspect that one of Drew's battles was against him. Well, a hint to what might have happened can be found in what we know of Drust. Specifically, we know that he ruled for a very long time. Maybe not a hundred years, as the legends say, but he had to have ruled for a very long time to at least get that sort of reputation. And, as you learned in the last episode, royal blood was passed on the female line, and brothers and uncles often succeeded to the throne. So Necton very well might have been viewed as the next in line and the strongest candidate for the throne. And if Drust had been ruling for a very long time, his best years might have been behind him. In fact, he might have been a bit too weak to rule. But unless there was a clear way to step down and hand over the throne when the king got too old, situations like that could get a bit messy. Basically, unless regency is an option, you're in a tight spot because you're basically stuck with either revolution waiting for nature to take its course, or you have to somehow arrange for the death of the old king when he's just too old or incapable of rule. So when you've got a bad king, there are just no good options there. And, as you might have guessed, there's no indication that the Picts had a regency system. So Drust, getting up there in years, might have been a bit concerned about his own well-being, especially if his brother, Necton, was gaining in popularity and support. Revolution, or maybe just a poison goblet. Either way, things were not going to look very good for Drust. And that fear alone might have led to Necton's banishment. But it's also possible that Necton might have made a move and just failed, possibly being on the losing end of one of Drust's hundred battles. Honestly, there are all sorts of ways this could have played out. But the point is that the brother of an old king might find himself turfed out of the kingdom as the king's power started to wane. There were many advantages to the way the Picts set up their government. But if you're the brother of the king, you are in a bit of a precarious position. And so, while Drust was ruling over Pictland, Necton was in Ireland. And while he was there, we're told that he met St. Brigid, the first abbess of Kildare. And it looks like he was rather impressed by her, possibly going as far as being baptized by her. Now, oddly, this is a rather common refrain in stories from this era. For example, the sons of Aethelfrith also were converted while in exile. But if you think about it for a couple minutes, it does start to make a bit of sense. While in exile, these nobles would have had none of the responsibilities of their office to keep them busy. And so they must have been getting rather bored. Further, they were probably in a fair amount of distress and looking for guidance, as well as help and something to believe in. So learning about a new religion would not only be interesting, but it would also carry with it the possibility of a light at the end of the tunnel. And so I would imagine that there would be few individuals more likely to be willing to convert than a noble in exile. Anyway, so we're told that Necton converted. And from that same record, it looks like he was also, understandably, a bit cheesed off at his brother over this whole banishment thing, because we're told that he asked St. Bridget to plead with God on his behalf. Now, it isn't clear whether or not she did, but it does sound a little like she might have, because she told Necton that if he managed to return to his own country, then God would grant him mercy, and he would hold the kingdom of the Picts in peace. And then, enigmatically, the story ends. Meanwhile, in Pictland, after apparently a hundred battles and a hundred years of rule, Drust died, 
and was succeeded by Talor, son of Aniel. And you're probably noticing that sons aren't succeeding to their father's thrones. And for those of you who listened to the last episode, you know why. It's kind of neat how it plays out though, isn't it? Anyway, so Talor, son of Aniel, was the new king. But he only ruled for four years before being replaced by Necton, son of Erp. And yes, he was the same Necton that was in exile. And interestingly, we're told that he ruled for 24 years. The guy who was the brother to the hundred-year king succeeded to that throne after Talor ruled for four years and then went on to rule for another 24 years. Even if Necton was born way later, we're still looking at a 128-year stretch. That's crazy. And also, how did Necton return from exile? And what did Druce's followers think of this, assuming that any were still alive? And how did he take the throne? Did he fight Talor? Or did Talor die and he just kind of returned triumphantly? And seriously, how old was Necton? Was he an extremely younger brother? Was he adopted? Was that 100-year thing total bollocks? Well, those are all excellent questions, but they are also questions without answers, though my guess is that the 100-years thing was complete fiction. Anyway, back to Necton. So we're told in the third year of his reign, Darladach, the second abbess of Kildare, because apparently St. Bridget was dead at this point, went on a mission to Britain, and in the following year, Necton granted her the land at Abernethy for God and St. Bridget. And some of the documents mentioned that the land grant included five square kilometers of land to be given in perpetuity. And for the non-lawyers listening, that means forever. Although if you're in the U.S., we have the rule against perpetuities, which prevents that sort of thing happening for the most part, and also gives law students just terrible night terrors because the rule against perpetuities is a pain in the butt. Anyway, all that law nerd stuff aside, what we're getting at here is five square kilometers is no small amount of land. And actually, this is a really big deal because it would mean that towards the end of the 5th century, probably around 50 or so years after St. Patrick's arrival in Ireland, Christianity was entering the land that would become Northern Scotland. That's huge. And you might be wondering why Necton the Great would do that. And that's where the whole story of Necton and St. Bridget comes into play. So maybe, given his connection with the saint as well as her prophecy, he became rather grateful towards the abbey at Kildare. And also, of course, to the religion they practiced. And that does make a certain amount of sense, doesn't it? But all of that aside, doesn't this remind you of the story of King Oswald? I mean, Oswald was converted while in exile, and he returned and set up the monastery at Lindisfarne. And here we have Necton converting in exile, and returning, becoming king, and setting up an abbey at Abernethy. I mean, Necton and Darladach seem quite like a parallel for Oswald and Aidan. But as interesting as all these possibilities are, this account of Necton and Bridget while in exile exists entirely in a vacuum. There are no corroborating records regarding this meeting between Necton and Bridget. So it's entirely possible that it's nothing more than medieval fanfiction. However, Bridget was alive at around this point in time. And not only that, but Darladach was Bridget's favorite pupil and was her eventual successor. So there are elements of truth in there. 
And if all of that is correct, it would mean that Christianity was already coming over about 70 or 80 years before the famous mission of St. Columba that led to the baptism of the King of the Picts. Now, just like with St. Patrick, if we dig into the material, we often find that Christianity had been there long before the arrival of the saints that were credited with converting the pagans. So you might be saying, this seems really significant. Why is this the first time we've been hearing about it? Well, Bede's discussion seems to imply that the conversions were done by St. Nidian in the south and St. Columba in the north. And Bede is obviously held in very high regard. Further, the versions of the Pictish Chronicles disagree with each other on the issue of Abernethy, having different kings be responsible for the building of it and some ignoring it altogether. It's a bit of a mess. And this sort of dramatic disagreement in the record is pretty common at this point in the Chronicle. So generally, scholars have disregarded the information prior to the reign of Brood, which, of course, includes the building of Abernethy, especially since it isn't mentioned in other sources. So yeah, this information isn't entirely reliable. But we already knew that. However, just because it might be legend, just like how Drust might be legend, doesn't mean that it should be utterly ignored. And unfortunately... That is typically how it's dealt with, but not here with the BHP. And there is a very simple question that should be raised regarding the issue of Abbas Darladak and the construction of Abernethy. Why would anyone make that up? Is there any reason for it to be fabricated? Why would the Picts invent a tradition about an Irish abbess? As A.P. Smith points out, quote, this is a tradition in which it was in nobody's interest ever to invent." End quote. Furthermore, we also have St. Patrick himself talking about the Picts as, quote, apostates. Not pagans, not heathens, apostates. That's a very particular word with a specific meaning. He was accusing them of renouncing their faith. So the implication is that someone must have converted them. And yet we have no indication that Ninian, the only missionary active in that area at the time that we know of, ever went north. So if it wasn't Ninian, and it wasn't Abbas Darladak, who was it? To me, it sounds like it was Abbas Darladak. Anyway, setting that aside for a moment, let's talk about St. Ninian. So what we're told is that St. Ninian was active amongst the southern Picts in the early 5th century. And Ninian, much like Patrick, was apparently a Briton who had spent some time studying in Rome before beginning his mission. Now, tradition holds that he began his mission in 397 at Whithorn in Galloway, with conversions flourishing among the people in the 5th century. And as a result, Ninian is traditionally the person credited with converting the southern Picts. And his actions in Galloway were well known. And even in Bede's time, it was known that he, along with a number of other saints, were buried there. But Ninian is not without his problems. The sources that speak about him all had their own agendas, and there isn't a single unified, unchallenged account of what his life was like as a result. And frankly, not even Bede claims factual knowledge regarding Ninian, but instead, he flags it all as being based upon tradition. And then you have the confusing aspect of details being added in over the centuries. And we're talking many centuries later. For example, we have details that have been added in in the 12th century and the 17th century. But if you ask me, they're a bit late to the game, and I really doubt they had access to more historical data than Bede. 
But looking at the story of Ninian, it all makes me wonder, why didn't he convert the Northern Picts? From Bede's account and from other supporting evidence, it looks like his conversion was basically just between the Firth of Clyde and the Solway Firth. So why only that limited region? Also, since he's credited with converting the Southern Picts, does that mean that the inhabitants of Galloway were considered Picts at the time? Or were they something else? After all, what exactly did the Britons and those writing the records at this time consider to be Pictish territory? Was it everything north of the Wall? Was it north of the Solway Firth? Given the lack of travel during this period, it's hard to say exactly what was considered Pictish and what wasn't. Clearly, looking at the records, we can be pretty sure that he didn't convert any Picts living above the Fourth Clyde line. But was everyone living below that line and beyond the Wall considered Pictish? And given that the records were being written by people who lived outside of the territory, it isn't too big of a leap to imagine that the Britons he left behind just saw his mission as converting the Picts, regardless of how the people he was converting saw themselves. You know? So these are all interesting things that come up when we look at the records. But moving past those questions, what we're left with here is yet another legend that might be true, but might not be. However, for the sake of simplicity, Let's proceed assuming that the core story of Ninian is true. And what we're told is that he was active in the south, but not in the north. The north was the territory that was converted by St. Columba, but he wouldn't come around until the 6th century. In fact, as much as 70 to 80 years lay between the story of Necton and Abbas Darladach of Kildare and the arrival of St. Columba. That's a big gap. So while the record is spotty, Ninian's conversion doesn't foreclose the possibility that Darladach was also active in the north and was setting up Abernethy. And given that we're told that Drus died in about 478, that means that Abernethy could have been granted by Necton as early as 482. So we could have had Christians operating in the far north long before Columba and well over a century before St. Augustine converted the Anglo-Saxons. I mean, we're talking about Christians in northern Pictland before the Battle of Mount Baden. Can you imagine that? Pictish Christians before the time of Arthur. It kind of shakes up your assumptions, doesn't it? But that's the whole point of this series. To shed light and discuss a fascinating but often forgotten area of history. And we'll continue that theme next week. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, pretty much everything. And you can find all of those things at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. All right. Thanks for listening. 